Hey guys, welcome back to the show. I'm your host, Dr. Joey Munoz, nutrition science PhD and founder of Fit for Life Academy. Today's episode is an interview I did with Dr. Milo Wolf, who recently received his PhD um, studying the effects of range of motion, specifically long length partials on hypertrophy. Fantastic episode. So much great practical information. I actually picked up on a ton of tips from him that I'm going to start incorporating into my own training to hopefully get more jacked. Before we get into the episode, if you're a regular listener of the podcast and you enjoy my content, I would greatly appreciate if you take a second to leave a rating and review the podcast. It helps me a ton and it helps me reach more people with my content. Anyways, hope you guys enjoy the episode. Dr. Milo Wolf, how are you doing, my man? Thank you for being here today. Hey, man, it's awesome to be here. Thanks for having me. How is your training? I can see you've got sweat on your sweater. <laughs> Bro, I was just uh, training legs, in fact. So uh, it is what it is. But we're here now talking range of motion today, I think. So let's do it. Yeah, we'll talk about range of motion. We'll talk about um, partial reps. It's so funny how things come full circle. And the more I always find it funny how it seems like the science seems to prove that the old school bodybuilders were doing things right. <laughs> yeah, well, it's funny because then you think about you hear that all the time on social media. Oh, we've known this for a while. Old school bodybuilders have been saying this. But then you think about how heterogeneous a population bodybuilders are. It's like, mm -hmm. think about one training approach. By and large, there was someone doing it. Low volume, Mike Menser. High volume, Ronnie yeah. Coleman, Arnold. Like, whatever approach you think of and people are doing generally, some bodybuilders, someone was doing it. And you can always use that as a, an argument in your case. Yeah, that's a great perspective. You know, it's the same thing as like when somebody says, uh, this is a very random example, but me and my friend met up and we were wearing the same colored sweater. Like what a coincidence. It must be that we have some sort of connection. Like, you guys meet up like four times a week, every week. Eventually you're going to wear the same thing. <laughs> For sure. And there's like potentially underlaying things that make you similar and thus likely to be friends. Survivorship bias. Maybe you exactly. both happen to like green, you know, who knows? Yeah. Speaking like a true scientist. <laughs> hey. Talking about science, man, do you mind giving the audience um, a quick rundown of your educational background? You recently became Dr. Milo Wolf. You were just you were just Milo Wolf before. So now just you're officially a doctor. What did you do your PhD in? Um, what kind of research have you published over the past couple of years? Let's start there. For sure. So I started my educational journey within sports science when I was 17. Um, I did my undergrad in sport and exercise science at Loughborough University. It's in the Midlands in the UK. I'll give you an idea of what that, where that is. When you Not say the word Loughborough, nearly no one ever knows what that is. Although maybe they should because it's been ranked best university in the world for sports science like four years in a row or something. Oh, wow. By a lot of things. Um, it's good for overall sports science and a lot of Olympians, for example, train there. It's like, it's one of those places. Um, however, as I was finishing my undergraduate degree when I turned 20 years old, I was kind of dissatisfied. I think with an undergraduate, typically you're going to deal with very broad knowledge, but not a ton of specific applicable knowledge to a certain niche or a certain practice that you're engaged with. In my case, the degree hadn't really taught me much about lifting weights and hypertrophy and strength. It was a lot of physiology, a lot of basic biomechanics, a lot of motor, motor learning, basic nutrition and stuff like that. But I wanted to get down to the nitty gritty, so to speak. And so... Coming to the end of my undergraduate studies, I was enjoying it, but I felt as though a lot of my learning came from outside sources. I was reading a lot mm -hmm. of maths, for example, monthly applications and strength sports. 
I was coaching a lot, I was doing that sort of stuff, and the degree just didn't seem that fulfilling. And so I was weighing up my options a little bit. I was thinking about potentially doing a master's in statistics to enhance my interpretation of studies, or a master's in data science to broaden my prospects and also enhance my interpretation of sports science studies, if I want to go that route. However, eventually, after speaking to a few people, I was like, yeah, let me see if I can do a master's but at a university where the researchers are actually invested in lifting. Because most universities for sports science, if you ever pursue sports science in higher education, they won't necessarily actually care about lifting. However, if you happen to find a university or a college where there is actual research going on about lifting, muscle hypertrophy, muscle strength, that's where you'll actually be learning about lifting typically because you'll have people who are interested. And so I was like, cool, let me reach out to a few people, see if they know anyone within the UK, within Europe, potentially in America, if there's a university that could cater to those needs. And so I reached out to Greg Knuckles, for example, and he recommended a few places within Europe, within the UK. And one of those places was Southampton in the United Kingdom, where James Steele and James Fisher, two researchers, were researching lifting for a while now. They've done a lot of work on volume, a lot of work on relative intensity or how close to failure you train, whether or not we're even accurate, that sort of thing, like gauging how close to failure we are and that sort of stuff. And so I was like, cool, let me apply for a master's there. However, as I applied for the master's program there, I also reached out to James Fisher, who quickly told me, listen, if you want to learn about lifting, don't apply for the master's. The master's is going to be more of the same as far as just giving you a broad general base. He was like, honestly, it sounds like what you're after is a PhD. And so I said, you know what, let me just apply for a PhD. And so I actually skipped my master's and went straight to a PhD um, and started that when I was 20. And the way that range of motion as a topic came about was quite organic. When I was 19, 20, finishing my undergrad, I actually met with Renaissance Pitization. I met Dr. Mike Isertel. I met a few people within Renaissance Pitization. And I was a big fan of their stuff, as I think a lot of people at that age are, to be honest. Um, and yeah. one thing they preached for a long time was full range of motion. It was like, ah, oh, you got to use a full range of motion. It's going to maximize your growth. And at the same time, back in 2020, there was the release of a publication by Brad Schoenfeld and uh, Joseph Gurdjieff that looked at all the existing data on range of motion and hypertrophy. And at the time, there were only six studies. And in fact, of those six studies, only two were in the upper body. And therefore, my thought process was, hmm, I need to pick a topic from a PhD proposal. This systematic review just came out noting a lack of evidence regarding range of motion and hypertrophy. Also, I'm kind of the guy when it comes to range of motion. Like in my gym, for example, people knew me as like, ah, always doing your full range of motion. You're locking out leg press and stuff. And I was following Renaissance Prioritization. And so it just felt like a topic that was both interesting to me and that actually needed more evidence. And so I was like, you know what? Let me just do my proposal on range of motion. My honest expectation going into it was a full range of motion is best. Like in the systematic review by the Rad Schoenfeld, for example, they specifically noted that in the lower body, like it was very consistently the case that full range of motion was better for hypertrophy than partial range of motion. But still, there was a lack of data. So I was like, yeah, let me do my, uh, pay my dues, uh, do some research and give us more certainty in our answers regarding range of motion. And so that's how it started. And as of a few weeks ago, actually, I successfully defended my PhD. So I am now Dr. Milo Wolf. And in this podcast, we'll be going through the answers to what range of motion is best for hypertrophy, what range of motion is best for strength, and all that good stuff. Yeah, thank you for the background story, man. That's fantastic. I had, um, you know, it's funny. I feel like oftentimes people 
kind of quote unquote fall into a PhD without having the intention of originally doing a PhD. I have a similar story to where I actually started my master's degree um, and my degree is in clinical nutrition, but I've always been interested in like sports nutrition and body composition more. Um, but I was taking a graduate level vitamins and minerals course. And that's where I met my PhD advisor because he was the instructor for that course. And him and I clicked immediately. We got along really well. And he literally just approached me one day after class and he was like, hey, uh, you should do a PhD with me. And at the moment, at, at that moment in time, I was like, man, I, I don't want to do a PhD, but uh, I know there's not much opportunity with just a master's degree in nutrition. Um, I didn't know anything about this online coaching space either. And what I told him was, man, I can't do a PhD because just one year of my master's degree is like $20,000. I can't imagine four years of a PhD. And he was like, oh, no worries. I'll hire you as a research assistant. We'll pay for your school and we'll pay you a stipend on top of that. That was my decision to start a PhD. <laughs> I didn't know uh, the specific area of research I was going to be looking at. And I ended up looking at the, the lab I worked in. We looked a ton of, at the effects of functional foods or the functional effects of foods on preventing uh, disease. So looking at polyphenols and how they influence like bone health as you age, for example, that was some <laughs> of the work that I did. Um, but I had no clue I was getting myself into that. I was like, I like this guy. He's cool. He's going to pay me. Let's do a PhD. And then I kind of just fell in love with the scientific process after that. I think um, like so it's the, story there. it sounds like more than any specific prerequisites. The main prerequisite is just eh, you're interested enough in this stuff that you're at least willing to give it a shot. You know, exactly. Both of our cases, that was how it was. Yeah. So let's go ahead and talk a little bit about your dissertation specifically. Um, what study did you run? What did you look at? What were some of your main findings? What were you surprised by? Yeah, for sure. So I think the main study people are familiar with is the meta-analysis we conducted. And that was published in 2023, actually, earlier this year. But it's been pre-printed for a while. Now, honestly, that came as the biggest surprise by far. Because as I said, going into the PhD, my full expectation was for range of motion is best for hypertrophy, right? That systematic review had said so, and I don't know, it kind of just struck me as reasonable. Yeah. However, I then spent a lot of time extracting the data for meta-analysis, which if you've heard on one, that takes a while and it's painstaking, but eventually took all the studies on the topic that compared a full range of motion to partial range of motion, extracted the data from all of those, and ran some analyses on that data. And essentially what turned out to be the case is that, first of all, when you actually looked at the whole data set of range of motion for strength outcomes, power outcomes, hypertrophy outcomes, all that stuff, it just plays a smaller role than we first thought. So okay. when you just compare partial range of motion or doing partial reps in any part of the range of motion to a full range of motion, we're talking about trivial effect sizes either way, typically. It's just not okay. a hugely influential variable compared to something like volume or relative intensity, where if you Certainly. do more sets or you train closer to failure, potentially, you'll just see more growth. With range of motion, we're talking about relatively modest effect sizes. So that was the first thing. When you just compared a full range of motion to a partial range of motion and didn't really make any distinctions as to, you know, like what part of the range of motion were the partial reps performed in or anything like that. A full range of motion not performed the partial range of motion for strength, for hypertrophy, for power outcomes, for sport outcomes, by just a trivial amount. But again, we're talking about super small differences. However, to me, that really wasn't the shocking part. I was expecting full range of motion to be better. The shocking part to me came when we did something I don't think any previous meta-analysis system I had done, 
which was break down partial range of motion into was the partial rep performed at shorter or longer muscle lengths compared to the full range of motion, right? So when you're doing a full rep, let's say, for example, you're doing bicep curls, right? And you're starting at zero degrees of elbow flexion or your elbows are locked out and you're going all the way up, flexing your elbows, getting a peak squeeze until, say, 130 degrees of elbow flexion. Sure. If you were to average the joint angle throughout that range of motion, you would be in the middle, 65 degrees. Mm-hmm. Now, when you're talking about partials, you might be a shorter or average muscle length, uh, or longer average muscle lengths compared to that. So, for example, if you're doing bottom half partials from zero degrees of elbow flexion to maybe like 65, you might have a longer average muscle length where you're at, say, 30 degrees on average or what have you, right? And so it seemed like maybe muscle length played a role because there is some data on isometric contractions and other areas suggesting that the muscle length at which you train does seem to influence hypertrophy at least a little bit. And so what we did is we compared full range of motion to partial range of motion, but specifying whether the partial range of motion was being performed at longer average muscle lengths, like more in that stretch position, or shorter average muscle lengths, like more in that peak squeeze or contracted position. Mm-hmm. And when we looked at it that way, a few things stood out. One, most of the studies, and I'm talking like 80% of the studies on range of motion and hypertrophy, we're actually comparing short muscle length partials to full range of motion. And only about 20% were looking at longer muscle length partials versus full range of motion. And so there's clearly a bias in terms of what studies were at the time. However, when you actually compared longer muscle length partials to full range of motion and shorter muscle length partials to full range of motion, the following happened. Very clearly, shorter muscle length partials were worse for hypertrophy than a full range of motion. So just doing partial reps in a peak squeeze or a peak contraction just not the best idea. However, based on, at the time, the limited evidence we had, which were around three studies at the time, comparing length and partials to a full range of motion, it actually seemed like length and partials could lead to more hypertrophy compared to a full range of motion. And that really took me aback. Uh, first of all, it took me aback because I expected full range of motion to win out pretty much everywhere by like a substantial amount based on previous review papers. But also because all of a sudden I saw that depending on the sort of partial that you did, full range of motion could actually be worse for hypertrophy and length mm. and partials could be better. And I remember just messaging like one of my clients at the time being like, dude, I just finished this analysis and I must have like coded something wrong. Like maybe I extracted the data wrong. Maybe I like put the wrong direction in. Like, you know, I put plus signs on it, put negative signs. Or, like something must have happened, right? And then it took me like a few days or a few weeks to really start like digesting it. And I was like, huh. And I thought about it some more and I looked at the evidence that wasn't just comparing full range of motion to partials, but also the evidence comparing the same range of motion, like for example, 100 degrees of elbow flexion, right? But simply perform at different muscle lengths. So for example, if you're doing a curl, you could be doing a preacher curl, where because your shoulder is flexed and the long head of the biceps inserts the shoulder, you're shortening the biceps by being in a more flexed shoulder position. You could compare that exercise, the same range of motion of 100 degrees of elbow flexion, to an exercise where you're extending your shoulder and thus lengthening the long head of the biceps more. And so you're doing the same range of motion, but you're just training the muscle at different muscle lengths. Mm-hmm. And even at the time, I think we had six to eight studies on that topic. So just the same range of motion, but different muscle lengths. And looking at hypertrophy. And what I realized is, even within this area, the findings were very consistent. Consistently, mm-hmm. longer muscle length partials were better than shorter muscle length partials. And so it wasn't just a case that full range of motion was potentially slightly worse for hypertrophy than longer muscle length partials. It was also the case that in general, longer muscle length training seemed better than shorter muscle length. And that applied not just to partials, 
versus partials. It didn't just apply to partials versus full range of motion, potentially. It also applied to isometric contractions. So when we had five studies at the time, when you compare just holding a certain position with weight, with tension, at different muscle lengths, at shorter or longer muscle lengths, across five studies, again, very consistently, they saw more hypertrophy when doing these isometric contractions at longer muscle lengths. And so in total, we were talking about 20 or 25 studies comparing, in some form, longer muscle length training to shorter muscle length training. And across these 20 or 25 studies, very consistently, the, findings was, the finding was longer muscle length training is better for hypertrophy. And so while we only had three studies, I was starting to say, hmm, maybe there's something here, right? And I'm not saying for sure now, hey, I was right and there is 100% something here. But it seemed like maybe there was something there because the general principle of longer muscle length training is better for hypertrophy seemed to hold up in a variety of contexts and areas of evidence. Since then, since this meta-analysis, there have been two more studies that have been published comparing length and partials to a full range of mode. There's also been a couple more comparing short and partials to longer muscle length partials, but let's focus on the two that have been published um, comparing length and partials or longer muscle length partial reps to a full range of mode. In these two studies, one of which has been published in a journal, one of which has only been presented at a conference, again, in both of these, you saw more hypertrophy with length and partials compared to full range of motion, broadly speaking. And so we now have five studies comparing length and partials mm-hmm. to a full range of motion. Out of these five studies, four found a benefit in terms of hypertrophy to length and partials over full range of motion. So if you want wow. to grow more muscle, you would do length and partials. And then going back to that partial repetitions at different muscle length stuff, we now have nine studies there. There is some overlap because some studies use both full range of motion, shortened partials, and lengthened partials. But in those nine studies, again, eight studies found a benefit to lengthened partials over shortened partials, and one found no difference. And so when you look at both shortened partials, which is lengthened partials, and full range of motion versus lengthened partials, to my knowledge, there has not been a study yet where a full range of motion was better than lengthened partials or mm. shortened partials were better than lengthened partials. It just hasn't happened. And so at this point, honestly, man, like, to me, the evidence is pretty compelling. And so in my personal training, I initially started, when I first saw the results of the meta-analysis, I initially started saying, like, hmm, okay, I'm going to do some, what I call, lengthened supersets. So I would just do, like, a four-range of motion set. And when I couldn't get full reps anymore, I would just keep going, but just doing partial reps in that length position. That's how I kind of started. And then gradually, I thought, well, look, maybe, like, that's not the best way to apply the findings. Ultimately, we haven't actually looked at that idea. We haven't looked at the idea of doing only length and partials at the end of a full range of motion set. The way mm-hmm. we've looked at this concept is length and partials as a standalone technique. Correct. And so the highest fidelity way of applying this might just be to do length and partials as a standalone modality. And so I started doing that. Equally, I realized that if part of the benefit appears to be, as I said, with the isometric data, with a partial range of motion data, with a full range of motion versus length partials data. It seems to me that there's kind of a few layers of mechanisms, and we'll get into those a bit later. Yeah. But it seems like the most obvious sort of practical mechanism that might be at play is that you're simply training at, on average, longer muscle lengths. If all you're yeah. doing is doing a full range of motion set, say you get 15 reps, and then like pump out three length and partials, you're not really shifting the average muscle length of that set by very much. Those three reps, that's a sixth of your set. You might be changing sure. the average muscle length slightly, but by and large, it's basically the same as a four-range of motion set. And so if we acknowledge that, hey, the benefit seems to stem from just training on average at lower muscle lengths, we do want to spend more time at lower muscle lengths, and that can't be accomplished very well unless we do a substantial amount of partials within your set. 
And so that's when I started taking the dive a little bit more. And now as of in two weeks, I think actually, because I started New Year's last year, it'll have been a full year of just doing LinkedIn partials for my hypertrophy. Okay. Um, I have been doing some strength work just because I'm training for strength sometimes for fun. So I occasionally do some overhead press or bench or squat or deadlift with full range of motion. But otherwise, I would say 95% of my training genuinely has been just LinkedIn partials. Interesting. And anecdotally, how have you been feeling with that style of training? Yeah. So I'm going to give you an unfiltered experience. Um, when I first got started with lengthened partials, the first couple of weeks, maybe I just jumped into it a little too quickly, but like I got a couple of niggles or a couple of small like nagging injuries, I guess you'd call them okay. in the US. Uh, I should clarify because I know in the US you don't use that word. Um, What's so, the word? Niggle. Niggle? N-I-G-G-L-E. Um, nope. So <laughs> I got a couple of small nagging injuries when I first started, and I think that might have just been the result of, and by nagging injuries, I mean genuinely just pain for like a week, right? Yeah. Major. Um, but then afterwards, since then, and I know people have a big concern about injury rates or pain or have you and doing LinkedIn partials, I haven't really had anything, right? Okay. I, have, I would say I've experienced no more injuries than usual versus before when I was doing just full range of motion. I would say on average, I think I've become a bit more flexible. I think like I yeah. can get deeper into in most movements, which makes sense because we do have a meta-analysis on this topic exactly, comparing just lifting weights to stretching. And they actually seem to elicit similar improvements in range of motion. So it makes sense that if you spend more time in that lengthened position, you grow a bit more flexible over time. Certainly. The other thing is, generally, I think my in day-to-day -day life, my joints feel pretty good. Like I, I, I couldn't say for sure that it's made it better, but I wouldn't say there's been a negative effect there. As far as hypertrophy goes, which is really what most people are concerned about, I think it's worked. Uh, look, yeah. I've been lifting for like nine years, ten years at this point. Yeah, um, yeah. I couldn't tell you like, whoa, you know, like based on the analysis, we're expecting five or ten percent more growth. I started implementing yeah. this, and all of a sudden, wow, my physique just yeah. changed. Yeah. Like, if we acknowledge we're talking about like a five or ten percent difference in growth rate, if we're talking about gaining like a kilogram or two, or like two pounds or four pounds a year of muscle, okay, am I really going to be able to measure visually, for example, even or even with a DEX or any or MRI or what have you? Am I really going to be able to accurately measure an extra 0.2 pounds of muscle because I use length and partials as opposed to full range of yeah. motion? And the answer is hell no. And so yeah. anyone who's expecting this to revolutionize your gains, it's not going to. However, and I think with lifting, we're always operating off assumptions and well-informed and educated assumptions, but they're assumptions nevertheless. Um, and we base those assumptions off of the evidence. But I still think that, look, based on the evidence, for hypertrophy, your best bet may just be to incorporate a good deal of length and partials in your training. Yeah. No, that's a great perspective. And I, I, I really appreciate how nuanced you are with it. And you're not like, just do length and partials, right? Uh, because there's a, a lot to discuss there. I quickly, so thank you for that overview of the topic. I think it's a, a fantastic overview. Um, I feel like often when we talk about different ranges of motion, within the context of the same exercise and we talk about the muscle being lengthened versus the muscle being shortened people get really confused right people who are not avid lifters like you and i and like intuitively it makes sense where the muscles lengthened where it's not what would be and i think it makes more intuitive sense for some exercises compared to others right like the bicep curl which you mentioned makes perfect sense your elbow stretched out your bicep is stretched peak contraction your elbows bent for simple terms you're shortened, right? But what's a simple way for people to know 
whether they're in a lengthened or shortened position in an exercise. 100%. You have no idea how often clients have gotten this wrong because it's... Especially with back movements. For back movements, for sure, man. I think people often assume that the hardest part of the movement must be the lengthened part. So like for ladder raises, they'll just do top end partials, for example. Yeah, 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 yeah. The most straightforward and foolproof way of actually determining this is to break down any exercise you're doing into a lifting phase where, you know, you're lifting the weight up higher, right? Versus a lowering phase where the weight is coming back down. And basically, at the end of the lowering phase is when your muscle is most lengthened. Sorry, my brain is a bit there. And so if you're just doing the first half of the rep from that position, you're doing a lengthened partial. So, for example, think of a bicep curl. When you've lowered the weight, right, when the weight is as low as it gets during the exercise, that's when your biceps are most lengthened. The same applies to a pull-down. When you see the stack go back down, then it's all the way down. That's when your lats are most lengthened because you're all the way at the top, right? For any exercise you can think of, when the weight is at its lowest point in the exercise is when your muscle is most lengthened. And so if you just break it down into a lifting and a lowering phase, and you just do the first half of that lowering phase, then you'll be good. That's a great way to explain it. And I think even more simply the way, because once you understand what you're actually feeling through an exercise, it almost makes it even easier because you don't have to think concentric, eccentric. And usually what I try to tell clients is like, first off, work on learning how to maximize range of motion because it's important to do that, I think, first and foremost, because most people don't know how to do that. But if you're at a point where you train your exercises through a true full range of motion, stop your exercise at both ends of the range. Where you feel a stretch in the muscle, that is where it is lengthened. I think it's that simple, right? Like where you feel a deep stretch, if you squat ass to grass, you will feel a stretch in your quads at the very, very bottom. If you bench press and touch your chest, you'll feel your chest stretched when the bar is touching your chest. Just be mindful of when you're doing the exercise. And if you're a newer lifter and trying to figure this out, slow down your warmups perhaps, right? And really think about the contraction and the lowering phase of the exercise as Milo mentioned. And just really think, okay, in this exercise, where do I feel a really deep stretch? Where you feel a deep stretch is where you should probably spend more time overall. Um, I think that's a pretty simple way of thinking about it too. And if you can't get that, I mean, I'm sorry. <laughs> and honestly, hey, just look up some tutorials. So yeah, not to plug myself here, but I think I might be the only person who actually has length and partial tutorials. Um, so if you go on my YouTube channel, Wolf Coaching, you'll find tutorials for each exercise breaking down, hey, what's the length and position on this exercise, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but it'll come naturally. I think, as you said, initially, you probably don't need to be overly worried about it if it's your first month in the gym, right? I don't think yeah. anyone anyone who's only been lifting for a month, I'm not sure they're like, I'm going to do length and partials now. I don't think <laughs> this uh, this idea has gotten to that stage where it's mainstream and everyone's talking about it, you know? Yeah. And you know, the funny part is when it comes to partial range of motion, um, and you mentioned that the effects of range of motion don't have that large of an overall effect compared to other variables, which actually was something very interesting you mentioned, because I would think that training in just the shortened position, um, perhaps is like way worse. And I'd love to know from you, like how large the effect is, but based off what you said, perhaps it's not that large compared to intensity, right? So beginners often don't know how to train hard at all, which is uh, a learned skill over time. In addition to that, they intentionally skip out on the lengthened portion of exercises, right? You see dudes doing preacher curls and it's just the top half of the bicep curl. 
you see dudes doing pull-ups and it's just a top half. Why? Because in general, many times that length of portion is very, very difficult, right? So it's like, you don't know how to train hard. You're not emphasizing the portion of the movement that's important. No wonder you're not seeing the gains that you don't want to see. And then people think it's their workout program. <laughs> for sure. For sure. The thing is, like, when you simply train with enough volume and close enough to failure, I think you're going to get the majority of your hypertrophy results, right? Like a lot of right. smaller variables like frequency and range of motion and that sort of stuff just don't play as big of a role. When you're talking about how bad or shortened partials for hypertrophy, like how much worse are they? Well, it looks like compared to four range of motion, for example, we're potentially talking about like a 10 to 20% worse hypertrophy on a per set basis when both are taken to failure, right? But then obviously length and partials seem better than a four range of motion. So maybe if we're comparing shortened partials to lengthened partials, we're talking about like a 25% difference in hypertrophy on a per set basis. Now, I'm sure we'll get into why that is. And I think part of that might just be because when you're doing lengthened partials on average, you'll be training a bit closer to true failure. And mm. so actually part of the benefit might just come from the fact that you're not just ending the set when you can't get a full rep anymore. You're ending the set when you can't get a lengthened partial. And that's actually closer to what some people might call true failure, right? It's just a little bit closer to true failure in the sense that your muscle is no longer able to even produce enough force to just do a lengthened partial, let alone a full rep. And so it's actually the drop off from start of the set to end of the set is larger in terms of how much force you can produce. Hey guys, some of you may not know that I'm the scientific advisor for a supplement company called Outwork Nutrition. I help with the formulation of new products to help ensure that they're effective and backed by science. Unlike many other supplement companies out there, we don't rely on exaggerated claims or flashy marketing tactics. Instead, we let the science speak for itself. We take pride in formulating products that deliver real results, helping you achieve your fitness goals in a meaningful way. If you're in the market for supplements like protein powder, pre-workout, or recovery products, make sure to check us out at outworknutrition.com. And as a thank you for being an avid listener of this podcast, use code Joey for an exclusive discount at checkout. You can find the link to our website down in the description of this podcast episode. Remember, our goal is to empower you with science-backed supplements that truly make a difference. Choose Outwork Nutrition and elevate your fitness to new heights. Yeah, that's a you actually just brought up one of the questions I wanted to ask that I was writing down when you were speaking earlier because we know that stretch-mediated hypertrophy is a thing. And we'll talk about what stretch-mediated hypertrophy is, which is likely one of the variables as to why training in longer length is beneficial. But then it's also the idea that like you're just training with higher intensity, right? I'd love to know, we probably don't have data on this, but anecdotally, how much of an effect does that play, right? Because we know intensity is a very important component for hypertrophy. The harder you train, aka the closer you are to failure, the more hypertrophic this, that one set is going to be, right? And so, because this is one of the questions I was going to ask, like long length partials versus full range of motion. Is it that the long length is uniquely beneficial or is it the fact that you are just pushing the muscle more near failure. And I was thinking about that because you were mentioning doing full range of motion throughout the entire set and then doing some long length partials at the end. That's how I've been incorporating it personally towards like the latter sets of a particular exercise. I'd love to know your thoughts on that. Yeah. So real quick off the bat, I think that the way you've been incorporating it is the super intuitive way of incorporating it. It's how I first started doing it because I was like, Man, I don't know if I want to do lengthen partial for the whole set. I think just like yeah. training a little bit harder, you know, t 
taking this out until you can't get a partial anymore. That just sounds right. You know, it evokes yeah. feelings of, uh, oh, I'm training hard. This is pretty cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. So when it comes to, do we think that the effect of lengthened partials on the hypertrophy is entirely because you're just training harder? I think it's unlikely to be the case. The reason I say okay. it's unlikely is because, to my knowledge, and this is uh, something we haven't really looked at, and by we, I mean the scientific community in too much detail, but to my knowledge, um, training closer to failure doesn't necessarily cause differences in regional hypertrophy. So okay. when I say regional hypertrophy, let me quickly explain what that means. We can talk about hypertrophy in two ways. One, we can assume that your whole muscle, from its origin point to its insertion point, or from like where it starts to where it ends, is going to just grow the same amount all across, uniformly across that muscle. Or, and as is probably more accurate, you're going to see differences in hypertrophy across that muscle as a result of training. Some areas are going to go a bit more, some areas a bit less. Different regions are going to experience different amounts of hypertrophy. And that's what we call regional hypertrophy. And to my knowledge, how close to failure you train doesn't really impact regional hypertrophy. You're not going to see more growth in one area versus another just because you went a couple reps closer to failure. However, when you compare lengthened training to more shortened training, you do consistently see that more distal areas of a muscle, so closer to its insertion point, and you can look up what origin point and insertion point mean, it's essentially just the two points of a muscle where the muscle starts, like the tendon it attaches to, and where it ends, the other tendon it attaches to. Um, origin just means it's closer to the midpoint of the body, and insertion just means it's further away from the midpoint of the body. So for example, for the quadriceps, the origin point would be around the hip, right? Whereas the, for rectus femoris anyways, and the insertion point would be to the knee, because that's further away from the midpoint. Anyways, when we're comparing shortened training to more lengthened training, the one area where lengthened training consistently causes more growth, and sort of the largest difference in growth, is at more distal points closer to the insertion point. And so if we're not expecting a difference in regional hypertrophy from training closer to failure, but we were seeing a difference in regional hypertrophy from lengthened training, it seems like that regional hypertrophy difference couldn't be just explained away by training closer to failure. And so at the very least, this difference in regional hypertrophy, if that can't be explained by just training harder using lengthened partials, then there just might be something else to it. And I think that brings about an interesting point about mechanisms. I think it's very tempting to simply attribute more growth or a given phenomenon to a single mechanism. However, mm -hmm. in reality, physiology is pretty complicated and mm -hmm. we're far from understanding everything about it. And in this case, there's a good chance that the mechanisms involved as to why lengthened partials might cause more growth are multifactorial. It's not just one thing. It's not just that you're training closer to failure. There's probably also other things involved. So I would just urge you to not be too hasty with saying, this is the mechanism. We know this. Sure. And, you know, making inferences or assumptions based on that mechanism of choice. Yeah. Are you tired of spending countless hours grocery shopping, cooking, and preparing your meals? I get it. Time is precious, and that's where Icon Meals comes into play. I've partnered with Icon Meals to bring you delicious, macro-friendly, and high-protein meals that will make it easier than ever for you to achieve your fitness goals. I understand that you may have hesitations over the cost of a meal prep service compared to cooking food at home. But let's face it, how often do you spend more money eating out because you didn't have time to prepare your food at home anyways? With Icon Meals, you not only save time, 
but you invest in your health. These meals are carefully crafted to be healthier and more in line with your fitness goals than most of the food that you eat out anyways. So why wait? Visit iconmeals.com and explore their wide array of mouth-watering meals. And as a special bonus for listening to this podcast, use code JOSEPH10 at checkout for a special discount off of your order. By the way, you can find all of the necessary links in the description of this podcast. Don't let time be a barrier to your success. Choose Icon Meals and fuel your journey towards a healthier, fitter you. That's a great perspective, you know, and it might be an interesting um, idea for, your, for a future study as well, comparing just long lengths versus full range with then some long length partials at the end. Yep. Because the thing is, you know, when we're talking about proximity to failure and you mentioning that full range of motion, proximity to failure doesn't seem to influence regional hypertrophy. Well, we can also throw in the caveat of it's not the same degree of failure, perhaps, right? So it'd be interesting. It's funny, like, we're obviously nerding out about this <laughs> very hard. Yep. And in practical, in a, in a practical setting, it probably makes a very minor difference for, um, sure. for hey, most people, right? Like most people, if, like nutrition and sleep isn't on point. hundred percent, hundred percent. Hey, if we're nerding out about that, I think uh, we can even take it to another extreme, which is. Yeah, we haven't really looked at that degree of failure, right? Like we mm-hmm. haven't examined, okay, well, when we take your set past failure using length and partials, essentially, do we then see differences in regional hypertrophy? Well, we haven't looked at that, so you might be right. Maybe that is actually how it works. And hey, if, if you're right, then I'll give you your $1,000 because you just <laughs> solved this whole thing. Um, but generally, when you're talking about a causal relationship, you do expect mm-hmm. some sort of dose-response relationship. So I would expect there to be at least a difference in regional hypertrophy going from, say, like 10 reps in reserve to failure or 5 reps in reserve to failure. And that also hasn't happened. And so, like, most relationships, I think, are at least, like, somewhat linear in nature. We would expect sure. to see a difference even at smaller doses, right? And you haven't seen that with training closer to failure. And so, hey, let's, let's see. But honestly, the study of comparing length and partials to length and supersets or just doing some partials after your full range of motion set is over, that is a study I absolutely want to do because I think it's the way that most people are actually comfortable in applying this stuff, that most people are not freaks. They don't want to do just partials at the gym and end up on Gym Fail National Instagram. Uh, yeah. just, you know, they want to do their hard set of full range of motion and then they want to be viewed as training particularly intensely by just doing some partials at the end. Um, and so I think it'd be interesting to see whether or not you can get the same hypertrophy using that approach versus length and partials or whether it's not as good because maybe it doesn't shift the average muscle length enough. And so that's a study that, now that you've mentioned it, and I've been thinking about it a decent amount of different ways of studying this idea. Um, it's a study I'd consider doing uh, potentially in the summer uh, with Brad Schoenfeld in his lab or something. Yeah. So I have a couple questions here that are coming up as you're bringing this up because there's so many like nuanced little topics here. So overall hypertrophy, perhaps slightly better with lengthened partials compared to full range of motion. But you also mentioned that lengthened partials seem to result in greater hypertrophy um, distally, right, near the insertion point of the muscle. So can you make the argument that it is important to train with full range of motion to expose your muscles to, sh- to shorten ranges of motion as well to perhaps also prioritize hypertrophy in more proximal areas of the muscle? Yeah, that's an interesting line of reasoning. And the answer there is I don't think so. However, there is still some uncertainty there. The reason I say I don't think so is, as I mentioned earlier, when we've compared length and partials to shortened partials, we've compared length and partials to full range of motion. 
we've never actually seen more hypertrophy using a full range of motion versus length partials or using shortened partials okay. versus length partials. And that has included sites where more proximal sites, right? Okay. That has okay. included more proximal sites. And so if anything, while the difference is less obvious at proximal mm-hmm. sites, it still typically is a neutral to positive difference oh. in favor of length and work. And so like, you know, if someone came to me and they're like, look, Milo, the judges have weighed in on my uh, bodybuilding appearance, right? And they say, I don't know, man, your distal hypertrophy, it's solid. But we really need you to bring up those proximal areas. And then I might be like, man, you should just be doing some shortened partials because we want to avoid yeah. that distal hypertrophy. You're already not symmetrical. But honestly, like in 99.999% of cases, I just don't see that being a thing. And again, we're talking about neutral positive effects in favor of length and training, even the proximal areas. So yeah, I, that's kind of the, my thoughts there. Yeah. How hilarious would a physique like that be though? Bro, it'd be crazy. I mean, like, honestly, that's another quick aside, quick tangent. People on social media or in general often think that like symmetry is this one point, right? And they're like, Arnold, that's symmetry, right? Like beautiful. And then like they look at another bodybuilder who might have completely different symmetry and they're like, wow, he's symmetrical too. But they don't realize that actually symmetry is a range. Like there is not a specific point. You could argue maybe there is, but like by and large, people are happy with symmetry with a range. So for example, when I competed, a lot of people would have said, oh, upper body was lagging, what have you. But then my feedback was, you're symmetrical. So I was like, oh. And I think just people generally have a skewed perception, both of what symmetry is overall in terms of physique. And then my pet peeve is uh, beginners thinking that, oh no, my left side is a bit smaller than my right side. We need to uh, really, really address this like right now. And it's like, yeah. well, like 80% of the time, you're just imagining it. 20% yeah. of the time, you might be onto something. However, yeah. 20% of the time, that'll fix itself within six months of lifting the usual way. Like it'll just catch up. So that's another pet peeve. Anyways, tangents are over. Yeah, no, I was just picturing somebody with like, uh, really large muscles near like the insertion point and it being substantially smaller uh like essentially right so like biceps being huge at the bottom that would be absolutely yes. hilarious just that visually be... um but that's where my imagination goes i'm always thinking of silly stuff i mean uh, yeah, the other paper though you know like the more spread out the, the muscle is yeah. right like you're talking distal areas that's a crazy yeah, yeah. paper though yeah, yeah uh really bad center of gravity but um the other question i wanted to ask and this, you know, ties the idea of um, long length and partials with other variables like volume, intensity, and fatigue management, you know, because some of the principles, um, I guess, popularized by people like Mike Isratel, for example, training submaximally to be able to really optimize the amount of volume that you perform, right? So maybe training roughly an RPE seven or eight, the majority of the time versus an RPE nine or 10. So you can accumulate more overall volume because it doesn't seem to be a huge difference in hypertrophy between an RPE seven and an RPE 10. Uh, but there does seem to be a bigger difference with more volume accumulation. And we just discussed that perhaps long length partials, at least part of the benefit is the fact that you do get closer to failure. So an RPE eight in a lengthened partial would still probably be slightly closer to true true failure than an RPE-8 standardized for full range of motion. What kind of an effect do you think that would have chronically on fatigue management and the amount of volume that you can perform as well? 
Yeah, man. You're asking some interesting questions. Um, yeah, my brain works, man. <laughs> hey, man. So this is a really interesting area because we don't have a lot of answers yet. Um, yeah. One study I've been wanting to see for a while now, and we have next to no data in, is, look, we know reasonably confidently now that, hey, if you take a set to failure, that set is going to be more fatiguing than if you kept five reps in the tank, right? However, can you get used to that? Your body generally can get used to a lot of things, right? Like when you first trained your legs, I'm sure you felt like you got hit by a truck, only the lower body though. Um, <laughs> whereas like the 10th time you trained legs, it was like, okay, yeah, I'm still getting sore, hashtag leg day, hashtag no pain, no gain. But like, yeah. it wasn't anything nearly as bad. And my hunch is that with training closer to failure in the research, we are observing a similar thing where most of the people who take part in research, most of the study designs, we are talking about people who aren't acclimated to it at all. Like they're just coming to the lab, maybe have a couple sessions of familiarization, and then they're like, okay, well, let's make you train to failure and see how much fatigue you get versus when you don't train to failure. These people aren't really used to training to failure in the first place. My hunch is that a lot of those fatigue differences do dissipate when you are acclimated to it. Is there still going to be an effect that makes uh, failure more fatiguing? Yes. But I think the difference becomes quite small, to be honest. And if we want to talk about fatigue management, uh, let's talk about the research that we have on extremely high volumes, right? We have a study by Brigado and colleagues, for example, one of the higher volume studies, where participants were genuinely, genuinely doing close to 200 sets a week total, all to failure. And like the higher volume groups, the groups doing close to 200 sets, saw more hypertrophy. And so clearly, within most people's routines that are doing not that much volume and maybe taking a few, ooh, the odd set to failure, fatigue management just isn't really a thing to worry about, right? Like if, if you're chronically stressed, you have a chronic health condition, you're getting two hours of sleep a night, hey, you're a new parent, your baby's crying next door. Like, yeah. you know, that might be rough. But for a lot of people, fatigue management isn't that huge of a concern, especially because a lot of people just run into time constraints first. Like sure. way before you ever run into fatigue issues, you'll run into like, oh, I don't have enough time to train. And that was illustrated, for example, by a recent study by others and colleagues, right? Which they had participants on average train with 37 sets of quads a week. And they still saw more hypertrophy in that group generally than the group training at 22 sets or 32 sets. Now, if you wanted to apply that to all muscle groups, you'd be in the gym for a while every week. Let's just put it that way. And so I think fatigue management is often overblown. It's a good concern for like the elite athletes whose job is to train and they literally have no time cap except for their lifespan um so i think it's overblown that being said i do think on average you'll probably see a little bit more fatigue from a set of lengthened partials taken to rp8 for example or two reps on the tank versus a set of four range of motion reps taken to rp8 now here's a couple things one when we've compared lengthened training to shortened training and measured hypertrophy directly uh, sorry fatigue directly there's not really that many studies. So again, it's kind of like the thing where I want to see a study that has people train to failure for a while and see whether or not that fatigue response diminishes. Um, we actually have a recent study by Robinson and colleagues that kind of did that, if I could talk about it or not. Um, but I want to see a study like that. But what I also want to see is more studies comparing the fatigue from lengthened training versus shortened training. Because right now we have like four studies that somewhat look at fatigue. And I'm going to be honest, by and large, there doesn't seem to be an effect. It just doesn't really seem to be a huge thing there. Um, now for the anecdotes, because I know that's what everyone really cares about and everyone really operates off of. Um, personally, as far as how many sets a week I can handle, since one, shifting to lengthened partials versus four range of motion, and two, shifting to training closer to failure versus further from failure, 
I really haven't noticed a big difference in how many sets I can do and recover from and how my performance is week to week. I just really haven't. And so I think fatigue is a theoretical concern with length and partials. And it might be the case that it's more fatiguing at the very least. And the evidence we have, we haven't picked up on it yet. And practically, I haven't seen it play too much of a role. Man, I am so happy that you answered that question in the way that you did, because I also think that this idea of training closer to failure being way more fatiguing is way overblown. And I say that not even from looking at the available research, just like my experience in the gym. And the reason why I've even experienced this is because I don't like training suboptimally, not suboptimally, like, um, what's the word I'm looking for here? Uh, without, not with maximal intensity, right? Like I don't like training at an RP six or seven. Submaximally, just, yeah. Yep. Yeah, submaximally, correct. I just feel like I have work left to do. Let's just mm -hmm. do the work, right? And I train probably realistically in RPE nine most sets because I think people say they reach failure. They don't really reach failure. I reach failure being like, I wouldn't be able to do another rep unless I really, really focused and honed in on this and like pushed it to the max, right? So probably an RPE nine for 90% of my work. And then my isolation based work, I do kind of just go to like, can't even do like a half rep anymore in that partial range of motion. And I feel fine right now. I also don't train with extremely high volumes. I probably do fairly what's what's fairly common about 12 to 15 sets per muscle group per week, but with a fairly high intensity. And I realize I notice that when I sleep well, I eat well and I'm not stressed, I'm good to go. I trained upper body yesterday pretty hard and like I feel pretty good. I could probably train upper body tomorrow. And I I agree with you that lifestyle variables probably influence fatigue and recovery way more. If I get a poor night of sleep, doesn't matter how my training has been going, it's going to be a shitty training session. If uh, things are stressful with work, uh, the baby's sick, I had an argument with my wife, I'm just not going to train well, no matter how like submaximally I've been training, right? I'm so happy you brought that up, man, because I do think that that is very much exaggerate. Yeah. And hey, it goes both um, ways though. Like you nowadays, I think you have a counterculture with everything. Like nowadays you're seeing it with length and partials where uh, several people over the past few weeks have been posting videos about, oh, length and partial is, uh, is BS, you know, and like, oh, these new scientists, they're trying to sell you something. It's like, I'm making zero buck off of this whole thing. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. If anything, I'd probably make more bucks selling range of motion, a four range of motion like everyone has been, you know? Um, and so it's a weird thing. There's always counterculture, but Recently, people have been going off about like, oh, training to failure causes a lot more fatigue. But there's also been like the Mike Menser fanboys who are like, oh, higher volume training just fatigues you, no additional hypertrophy. And it's like, have you ever tried doing two sets, maybe three? Like, you'll survive. Trust, trust me, you can even do them to failure and you'll, you'll be fine. But there's yeah. always this thing of like, whenever an alternative approach is suggested, there's kind of like a, a list of things people rebuke instantly. And it's like, okay, but is it not more fatiguing? Okay. What about injury though? Hmm. Okay. Like there's always like a few, a few like things people just love to bring up. And it's like, if you actually knew the evidence on this stuff, like the one deload study we have, for example, by Coleman and colleagues, people either trained for nine weeks straight with 20 sets to failure of quads a week, or they mm -hmm. took four weeks apart, one week deload and train hard four weeks again. 
So essentially, they deal with it after four weeks and then train hard again for four weeks. And if anything, both hypertrophy and strength leaned in favor of not deloading. So just training hard for nine weeks straight. So if you're telling me that every three weeks, you really need a deload, right? You really do. Yeah. I-, I might just be a bit skeptical. I might eventually yeah. just give it to you or like to a client. I'm like, yeah, okay, yeah, sure, just deload. But like, I don't think you benefited from it. I think you can probably train a little harder and see more hypertrophy. Like, that's what I'm saying with volume and relative intensity, how close to failure you train, and even length and partials to an extent, I guess, because it's an extension of that a little bit. By and large, most of your hypertrophy is just going to be explained by doing relatively higher volumes, training relatively close to failure, and just doing that for a long time. You don't need to do it every three weeks. Fatigue is yeah. not that big of a deal. Yeah. And genetics. And oh, oh, yeah, okay. Shout out, shout out to my really, really good friend, Bernardo Lopez. I'm not sure if you know him. He's, he's, uh, yes, he's also spoken to Dr. Pack a bit. Yeah. So he's, um, it's funny. He just posted a story the other day. So he works with a coach and in his new training program, he's doing a superset, as you mentioned, of full range of motion, leg extensions, followed by uh, immediate set of length and partials to failure. And I just saw how much effort he was putting uh, into the set. And poor thing, him, just like myself, our legs do not grow that easily. And I messaged him and I'm like, why put so much effort when your legs aren't going to grow anyway? And we were just cracking up because like, man, people underestimate the effects of genetics so much when it comes to these things. Um, hey, man, and what I you were mentioning for you, 200 yeah. milligrams a week and you're covered. Don't worry about it. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny, man, because I post it's and Mike and I were talking about this, too. I consider myself um, a, fa- a fairly educated person in, in this area. Right. I don't have a Ph.D. in exercise science like you do, but I keep up with the literature. I speak to people like you. I feel like I'm informed enough to give recommendations. And inevitably, when I do, people always comment but like, you're not even jacked. I'm like, dude. Come on, bro. Like, first wait, off, wait, wait, hold why up. do you want to ruin up. my day like that? And two, I have some information in my brain that's pretty useful. <laughs> it's true. And like, realistically, that's the one thing I always think about correlations when it comes to this stuff. It's like, mm-hmm. when you see someone jacked and you think, okay, how does this relate to how much they know? Where you see someone wealthy and you're like, okay, does this mean that every wealthy person knows exactly how I should make money? And you think about correlations and you're like, hmm, how much of a correlation is there really here? Because like genetics plays much more of a role than knowledge, right? Hard work plays much more of a role in knowledge. And so really we're talking about a correlation between someone's physique and like their knowledge and ability to give you results of like, fuck man, 0.1, 0.2. Like there's a very yeah. weak association there. And the second thing is like, and I think, what, what height are you? What, what's your height and weight? 6'5". I'm cutting right now, usually around 215. Bro, then like, it's funny because on social media, and I'll say this generally, the shorter you are, the bigger you on are. your own in pictures, the bigger you look. Like, yeah. But then, exactly. like, so I'm 6'2", I'm so I'm kind of like in the same boat. Um, but then, like, you meet some of these people in real life, and like, oh, okay, you're just a normal person. But then on, online, it's like, if you're tall, you're like fucking slender man oh, yeah. over here giving that advice, apparently. You know? No, that's a great perspective, for sure. Um, I was going to mention with what you were saying with, there's always, like, counterculture against some of these things, right? Uh, people mm-hmm. talking about low volume, high volume. High intensity, low intensity. You see the same exact thing in the nutrition space as well, which cracks me up. And, you know, as you mentioned, people saying that you're trying to promote this because you're making money off it. And it's like, what are you talking about? In the nutrition space, I get it all the time whenever I talk about the fact that, like, seed oils really aren't that bad. 
or artificial sweeteners probably aren't that bad. The funniest one is whenever I talk about fiber and people just like in the carnivore community are like, we don't need fiber. And like, it's not good. And it's not, and it's, it's so funny because people make up like all sorts of crazy mechanisms to tie their hypothesis to this or, or, or to explain why their hypothesis is true. And theoretically it like kind of makes sense. Right. But it's like, you're just ignoring like all of the data. Right. So I was just listening to, um, Dr. Sean Baker. Are you familiar with Dr. Sean Baker? I've heard the name. Yeah. Unfortunately, he's probably one of the biggest proponents of the carnivore diet. And he actually has a more balanced view on it. He's not one of those people that says that like vegetables are going to kill you, which is a very extreme view. But his whole idea is that um, all of the research on the benefits of plant-based foods is one, confounded by the fact that this research is funded by big food companies, which the funny part is that it's not, right? It's not funded by big food companies. And the second argument, when he talks about uh, the health benefits of fiber, he essentially hypothesizes that fiber consumption is a proxy for socioeconomic status in the sense that people who consume more fiber and are eating more um, whole foods likely have higher socioeconomic status. So they're also doing other things to improve their health. And that's why we see improvements in overall health. And it's like, dude, what about studies where they don't change anything about a person's diet and just give them a fiber supplement? And we see improvements in cardiovascular outcomes, blood sugar, et cetera. It's just crazy the the ignorance that exists in terms of like ignoring data just to promote something, man. Bro, it's crazy because with something like fiber as well, when you're looking only at observational data, like you're looking at, okay, some people eat more fiber, some people eat less fiber. Who's healthier, right? Yeah, if you only have that and you don't make any adjustments for covariates, yeah, you can say, oh, actually, I think in part or, you know, even in big part, sure. the people eating more fiber are healthier because they have greater socioeconomic status and this they have better health opportunities for health behaviors overall. Fair enough, right? Like, I think that's right. a very important thing to acknowledge. And it's probably playing a role in that observational data. Sure. But like with fiber, we're talking about a variety of things that can explain the benefit. As you mentioned, if we have RCTs just looking at fiber intake, right? Sure. And controlling for everything else. And seeing a benefit, it's like, wow, we're really trying to discredit this for no reason. The other thing is, one, people love to give their own experience meaning somehow or like build a narrative around it. So they'll try and come up with a mechanism. And like, honestly, look at the Jeff Nippard video, for example, on LinkedIn partials, right? Look at the comments. People will try and like come up with mechanisms or explanations for everything. People love to explain stuff. And that's good. But equally, you got to acknowledge when you're like, this works. I don't know why yet, but it does. You know, like, that's fine. That's fine. The other thing is, if you only operate off of mechanisms and like your hypotheses of mechanisms, you'll often be led to diametrically opposing perspectives. Let's say, for example, we didn't have any evidence on range of motion yet, right? And people only, like you paid a thousand people to just come up with ideas as to why a partial range of motion might be better or a full range of motion might be better. They would come up with a variety of mechanisms that could be somewhat reasonable or less reasonable based on the evidence. That would lead them to believe partial range of motion has to be the best thing for hypertrophy. Or no, full range of motion has to be the best thing. If you just look at mechanistic evidence and pay attention to mechanisms, you can be led to really different places and they don't necessarily make sense. 
if you directly look at the applied data we have, and you see that this intervention leads to this outcome, aka latent partials, leads to more hypertrophy, or greater fiber consumption leads to better health overall, that's the stuff you should be taking as the gold standard of evidence. Not your ideas of what the mechanism is or like any of that stuff. Just pay attention to the applied evidence first. That's why like nowadays with Brad Schoenfeld's lab, for example, uh, he's called it the applied muscle development lab. Because ultimately, yeah. if you're looking at mechanisms, that's very interesting. And it's very important to better our understanding of different training practices and what have you and how they work. And eventually maybe arriving at what the best training approach is as a result or explaining why they work. But equally, ultimately, at the end of the day, we're concerned about what can we do that will make us better? Can we do length and partials to make us more jacked? Can we eat more fiber to get overall better health? That's ultimately what we care about, right? The mechanisms can come later. And so paying attention to the mechanisms first is the wrong way to go about it, in my view. Certainly. And the way I like to explain it to you is like a mechanism is perhaps also from a researcher's perspective, a good starting place to form a hypothesis and then test it in actual outcome data, right? Because it goes, it goes both ways. Sometimes you find a certain relationship or uh, find an outcome that perhaps isn't explained. And then you can do some mechanistic work to figure out why perhaps that's occurring. And the opposite is true too, right? Sometimes there are some really interesting mechanisms that come out of cell culture studies or animal data. And you're like, okay, let's see if this actually plays out in humans, right? And obviously that relation, relationship can go either way, but ultimately we definitely have to rely on the data on humans because we are humans, right? And it's funny what you mentioned earlier about like the observational data, even if the observational data was all we had, and even if the observational data didn't um, account for every single confounding variable, the relationship still stands true, especially for something like fiber where it's being tested in hundreds of thousands of people. This is not, you know, like hundreds of thousands of people, different populations across the world. You would also assume that due to the heterogeneity of the population, that a lot of these confounding variables kind of cancel them out, themselves out to an extent, right? And it's just funny, man, because people, it, it, to you and I, it makes obvious sense as to why it's a joke. But people who don't understand these things, it's really compelling. It's really compelling, right? Like, oh, this doctor said that if you only eat meat, you're really healthy. And look at him. He looks great. And, you know, I could say the same argument for meat consumption being a proxy for socioeconomic status. It certainly is way more than fiber, right? Steak is more expensive than canned beans. By far, it's so it's just, the, the arguments are hilarious, really. Um, last couple of things I want to talk about, man, because I want to be respectful of your time. I'd love for you to explain, since we're talking about mechanisms, what is stretch-mediated hypertrophy? Yeah. So first, before I go into that, I want to explain why stretch-mediated hypertrophy probably isn't the term you want to use when talking about okay. length and partials. Right? Okay. And that's why whenever I talk about stretch-mediated hypertrophy, I put it in brackets nowadays. Um, the term stretch-mediated hypertrophy originates, to my knowledge, from the data we have on long-duration passive stretching in often animals, sometimes humans, and observing typically quite robust hypertrophy in those people. We're talking about studies where they are stretching for like an hour a day, or sometimes they're being stretched out for the whole day in like some old bird studies where 
their wings were being weighted down like exactly like 24 hours a day you know like insane rates and in that case we're talking about stretch mediated hypertrophy because they're not actually performing you know resistance training they're just stretching right they're just being stretched out more muscle it's with somewhere between very low tension if you're talking about human studies typically because you can't really ethically weigh someone down with three times their body weight for weeks on end and hold them in a lab or with like really high intensities in the case of animal studies we're talking about when stretch made hypertrophy is mentioned we're talking about these studies right Mm-hmm. In these studies, we have some indication of what the mechanism might be, right? Because this is a relatively old area of evidence compared to range of motion. With range of motion, I'm talking all the studies have been done in the past like 10, 20 years, pretty much. It's very recent. With some of the stretch data, that's been around for a while. Because stretching is kind of a, it's been a thing for a while. It's been a topic of interest. And so with that, the mechanisms are somewhat well understood. Now, what grinds my gears a little bit is when people in social media nowadays try and equate the literature and the mechanisms that have been attributed to stretch mediated hypertrophy with the new data on length and partials. We're talking about two very different modes of exercise. In one case, we're talking about stretching for hours and hours a day mm-hmm. at relatively low intensities, isometrically. That's one thing. On the other hand, we're talking with length and partials about spending on average maybe like an extra 20 seconds in the lengthened position across a whole session. We're talking about a, a difference in duration of exposure of like a hundredfold in terms of magnitude. It's a mm. hugely different thing. We're also talking about differences in intensity. And so while there might be some underlying overlapping mechanisms between why length and partials cause more hypertrophy and why stretching can lead to hypertrophy, to equate it to is basically to say the same thing as, well, I think running and lifting weights will both cause the same hypertrophy. Because you're, you're both, like you're contracting your muscles in both cases, right? Well, yeah, but in yeah. one case, you're talking about very low intensity, longer duration, no rest times. Like you're ignoring a lot of factors there. It's not Certainly. a very good representation. And so that's why I, because stretch made hypertrophy has been a term forever, I've been hesitant to use that term in relation to length and partials. With that being said, I think one of the mechanisms at play behind why length and training, length and resistance training is generally better than shortened resistance training is just training closer to failure. Um, especially when you're comparing full range of motion to length and partials, by going to failure on a length and partial set, you're going closer to true failure, as we mentioned. And based on a recent meta-regression by Robinson and colleagues, there is a relationship between how close to failure you go, taking it all the way to true failure, and how much approach you see. And so that is one of the components, I think. The other components might be down to tension. So as you lengthen a muscle, you can kind of visualize a muscle as being a rubber band, right? The more it gets lengthened, the more passive tension builds up, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Because it wants to return to its resting length. And by the muscle, by the way, I mean the muscle and the tendon because they're essentially like a rubber band. As they get stretched out, they kind of like build up some tension. It's hard stretching. And so because tension appears to be the primary mechanism to lead to hypertrophy and training at lower muscle lengths gives you this additional benefit of more passive tension, Mm -hmm. that could potentially straight up lead to more hypertrophy, right? Mm-hmm. So that's one thing. It could be the fact that it's a passive tension specifically, so maybe there's like an additive effect where just active tension leads to this much hypertrophy, but then you can add some additional tension on top if it's passive, and that'll lead to even mm-hmm. more hypertrophy. Or it could just be the idea that you're getting both the active and the passive tension, so more overall tension. It could be either of those things. I think those, for the time being, are relatively uh, convincing mechanisms. I think two other ones that come to mind are 
One, because we typically see more hypertrophy in distal areas, it may just be that length and training just kind of targets those areas better. It might be that those areas are more responsible for force production or what have you, or they're more activated, and there's some research linking activation measured via transverse relaxation MRI to hypertrophy. And so maybe length and training just activates those areas of the muscle a little bit better, and thus leads to more hypertrophy there. That could be a possibility. Um, the final thing is, as much as some people love to pretend we understand the um, signaling pathways for hypertrophy perfectly, there are still some things that are not super clear. Um, it may be that certain signaling proteins for hypertrophy are more are phosphorylated or activated to a greater extent when you're not just exposing them to tension, right? Like mechanical transduction, but you're also exposing them to tension, aka training, at certain muscle lengths, specifically at mm -hmm. longer muscle lengths. And so it might just be that molecularly, certain proteins involved in making your muscle grow are more responsive to tension when it's being applied to lower muscle lengths. And hey, I just mentioned like five different mechanisms. It yeah, could be yeah. that two of them are true. It could also be that yeah. all of them are responsible to a certain extent. The truth is, we just don't know. If someone's telling you, look, it's, it's all just classical length, or it's all just sulcomerogenesis, yeah. in all likelihood, they're making some hugely unwarranted assumptions. That's my take. Yeah, that's a fantastic explanation. And something I find really interesting, as you mentioned, is the idea of perhaps some signaling pathways that contribute to hypertrophy being better activated, we can say, when the muscle is placed under tension under stretch, right? And we know that, our, that there are specific receptors that respond to stretch, right? Um, this is one of the mechanisms why eating lower calorie foods results in greater satiety because we have stretch of the stomach and there are mechanoreceptors that, re that increase the release of ghrelin, for example, right? So it's not just caloric load, but how much like the volume of food itself is induced and we see this like in animal studies this is pretty messed up but they'll essentially put a balloon into a rat's stomach and blow the balloon up and measure some hormones uh and it's cool man it's cool how like like you mentioned earlier physiology is very complex and on top of it being complex there's a ton of redundant mechanisms so there's a ton of things going on that essentially contribute to the same outcome right and I think people like you and I who are like nerdy about these things, we always want to know why, but in reality, and this is something my PhD professor always told me to, in reality, in reality, like the why matters, but not that much because in research, we tend to spend millions of dollars trying to figure out the why. And oftentimes we never really figure out the why. And the, the analogy that my professor always liked to use, he was like, we get so focused on analyzing a leap and we forget about the health of like the entire tree or the forest, right? Which I've always really liked that analogy. Anyways, man, to wrap this up, the last thing I wanted to ask you is for the general trainee, right? Somebody who goes to the gym four or five times a week, they're probably like pretty focused on lifting, but it's not their entire life. Um, what are some practical ways to incorporate long length partials? Do you recommend for somebody wanting to really focus on hypertrophy, almost doing exclusively long length partials, or is this something that you perhaps can implement later on in a mesocycle? I'd love to know your thoughts. Great question. So first up, let me preface this. We're talking about relatively small differences. You can do whatever you want. Yeah. This is talking about maximizing hypertrophy. And this is what I think is your best approach based on the evidence. 
I don't think there's going to be a huge difference between, say, doing half of your work as length and partials and half of it as full range of motion versus doing mm-hmm. all of it as length and partial. However, to be honest, man, like with the evidence we have now, I can think of very few, if any, areas of evidence with greater consistency and greater number of studies or overall sample size, I guess, looking at this phenomenon, right? Even if we're talking about volume or relative intensity. While the benefit doesn't seem to be as large with range of motion and potentially training at lower muscle lengths, it's very consistent and we have a good deal of data. And so to be honest, if someone came to me and was like, look, I don't care about anything else. I just want to optimize hypertrophy. What do I do? I would tell them, look, do this much volume, do this much relative, like train this close to failure, do this, do these exercises. Um, as far as the range of motion goes, if they had some background and experience with full range of motion only, over the course of like a month or two, I would gradually transition them to probably exclusively partials. Okay. That's, that's a hot take, right? Uh, that's a hot take. And I think, again, we're talking about a very small difference and we're talking about, yeah. especially if you're doing half of your work as length and partials already, there's a good chance you're not seeing much additional benefit by going all the way to just length and partials. But if someone really just wanted to optimize hypertrophy, I would do that. Now, the truth is, a lot of people I speak to, clients included, people in general, um, excluding myself because I'm a bit of a, like, I actually have researched this stuff, so I think I'm a bit more open-minded about it. But a lot of people I've spoken to don't really want to do that, right? Like, making yeah. partials on some exercises feel a bit odd or a bit weird, or we get weird looks in the gym. And so here are some alternatives to doing that. One, you could just do some proportion of your training as just length and partials. Maybe you just do half your work as length and partials. Maybe because you enjoy training heavy and hitting PRs over time in that heavy rep range, like say five reps or 10 reps or what have you, you keep that work as being full range of motion so you can still track progression on that. But all your higher rep work, you just switch to length and partials. I think that's a great approach. Another approach is to say, well, certain muscle groups might benefit a little bit more. So when you think Mm -hmm. about different muscle groups, certain muscle groups just don't really ever get trained effectively in that length of position. When you're talking about the side delts, when you're talking about the back, pretty much all exercises that people do to target these areas, like 95% of the time, they're either not getting a full stretch or that stretch position isn't actually loaded. So a lateral release, for example, with dumbbells. At the bottom, there's just not really any load to press against or contract against. And so for those muscle groups, like the side delts, like the back, like the biceps, maybe that's where you decide I'm going to do length and partials exclusively on or mostly on. And other muscle groups like the quads or the chest, where you're typically already getting a good stretch, good tension in that length of position, maybe on those you don't care as much and you just do full range of motion. That's fine. So that's if you want to do length and partials as your primary modality to emphasize lower muscle lengths. Now, there are other modalities. I think the most straightforward one is if you have certain machines, like for example, Prime equipment. Prime is a brand that allows you to load different positions more effectively. Loading that length position preferentially is great. So for example, if you have a pin-loaded machine, I would put like 80% of the weight in a length position, maybe 20% in a middle position, and 0% in a short position. So that then even if you're doing full range of motion reps, the resistance curve is biased such that you're still getting a great length and stimulus within that exercise. That's one way. The second way, and kind of in line with that, but if you don't have this fancy equipment that not many people have, is certain exercises are just probably better on account of this stuff. So for example, if you're comparing something like a cable pullover or a cable fly to something like a dumbbell pullover or a dumbbell fly, you're talking about one exercise that, yes, you can get a full range of motion with, but the length of position is never that challenging versus an exercise where the exercise itself is already a length and partial. Like a dumbbell pullover, 
it's hardest in that fully lengthened position. Yeah. It gets easier as you shorten the muscle. And even at the top of the rep, your lats aren't actually fully contracted. So it's already like partial. So certain exercises are likely just going to be better than others on account mm-hmm. of this idea. Same with dumbbell flies versus cable flies. Same with sissy squats or reverse Nordic curls versus something like a leg extension. Same with potentially for the hamstrings, seated leg curls versus lying leg curls. Certain exercises are probably just better even when you do a full range of motion than others on account of being trained at long muscle lengths. So that's one thing. Then we have something that I would call sort of tempo modifications, where if you want to emphasize the length and position through tempo, I would do three things. One, I would control the eccentric the most when you reach into that length of position so that you essentially produce more force in the length of position because you have to slow the weight down more, right? The second thing is I would pause in that length of position and I would avoid pausing in that shortened position. But the more time and the more force you produce or spend in that length of position versus that shortened position, the likely the better it's going to be for hypertrophy. Finally, as far as tempo goes, try and be explosive during that lifting phase out of that length of position. You really mm-hmm. want to try and maximize force production out of that length of position. So that's as far as tempo goes. Finally, as far as sort of special techniques go, what I would say is the main one is going to be lengthened supersets or integrated partials. With lengthened supersets, as we've referred to a few times here, you would do a full range of motion set, just do four reps until you can't get another one or until you say, ah, I've reached RP8, that was my target, let me stop it there. But instead of ending the set, you would just continue but doing lengthened partials. So doing half reps roughly in that lengthened position. Whenever you're doing lengthened partials, by the way, try and make sure you have some sort of landmark you can standardize it with. So for example, if you're doing machine row, oftentimes you can pull to the chest pad or just below, below the chest pad or what have you. If you're doing something like a pull down, you can just pull the bar down until it reaches your forehead level or something like that, right? That way, you have a very easy to standardize part of the range of motion that you can end the rep at. And week to week, your performance will likely be very consistent. The final thing is called, so with lengthened supersets, full range of motion reps, and when you're done with that, just do some lengthened partials, again, to a similar RPE or whatever your preference is. This won't shift the emphasis very much of the set. And so I would generally recommend something like integrated partials over lengthened supersets. Integrated partials are essentially the same idea, but instead of reserving your partials for the end of the set, you just do them throughout the set. You kind of sprinkle them in, right? I think at the most extreme, you could literally do all lengthened partials and then just do a last rep as a full rep, right? That would be technically integrated partials because you both did lengthened yeah. partials and full range of motion in the same set. If you did this extreme approach for integrated partials, you get most of the benefits of lengthened partials and that you shifted the average muscle length of that set far more than if you just did like three partials at the end, right? Equally though, if it's a preference you have, if the client enjoys it, what have you, what you could simply do is do one full range of motion rep, for example, and then follow that with two or three lengthened partials. Do another full range of motion rep and just keep that ratio consistent. And for certain exercises, specifically like squats, free weight, or benching free weight, I think integrated partials can be better than lengthened supersets or lengthened partials alone because it allows you to simply end the set with a full range of motion rep and still it sort of be part of that set, right? Because if you're doing lengthened partials on your own, on like a free weight movement, a barbell specifically, mm-hmm. dumbbells you can fail pretty thickly. But doing lengthened partials on a free weight movement, like a barbell squat or a bench without a spotter, it can get a bit sketchy. So that's where I recommend yeah. this sort of technique. Dude, I could, I literally have like five other questions in my brain, but we'll save that for another time. Um, those are some great recommendations. Just from my own training, personally, I've been incorporating some of these things that you're mentioning 
just intuitively without even like really thinking about them, right? In terms of one, I tend to incorporate long length partials on uh, shoulder based movements and back more just because it makes sense, right? Because I think intuitively anybody doing a row, it's like you can't touch your chest pretty quickly in the set, but you still feel like you have a lot left in the tank. So keep going, right? So I, I always do that on back movements. I think that makes a, a ton of intuitive sense. What you mentioned about tempo is something I've been incorporating as well. Whereas when I start the eccentric phase, it's much quicker. And then I intentionally slow down to the term I like to use is to lean into the stretch, right? Like really lean into the stretch, spend more time there, perhaps pause in that stretch position, which is another topic altogether, like discussing whether pausing actually has any sort of effect. But I think, hmm. again, intuitively, it makes sense. It also really, I think, helps with mind-muscle connection, which is a completely other topic. Um, so I appreciate you sharing a lot of those, man. Um, in my own training, like we discussed, I've been really enjoying, like, if I'm going to do three sets of something, because I, as much as I think it's BS, it's just like that intuitive sense of like, man, taking everything to absolute failure, you know, maybe not a good idea. So if I do three sets of chest press, that third one, I will do the superset with the length and partials. Um, it's funny that you brought up, and I promise you this will be the last question, Milo, and you can answer this shortly. Uh, you mentioned standardizing the long length partial, right? For example, it's going to pull down at least 90 degrees of elbow flexion. Why? Right? Because you see people like, who's super uh, famous right now, Sam Sulik, right? That guy is like, for some movements, the definition of length and partials to absolute failure to where he's only moving like inch. Do you think that's inherently a bad idea? Oh, man. Uh, I'll give my short answer. I think standardization is overrated within the okay. evidence-based fitness space. Yeah. Um, within the evidence-based fitness space, people love to have data and like track things, you know? Yeah. And so standardization seems like an obvious thing to do because then your data is actually valid. And I think that's fine. Sure. Uh, equally, you have to remember that just because your range of motion is exactly the same or not as last week, doesn't mean you'll get more or less growth in last week. Sure. You know? Like, just because last week you did, say, 5% more range of motion, and this week 5% less, your hypertrophy is almost certainly going to be the same. If in the research we're having difficulty detecting differences between doing, like, full reps and doing, like, 25% reps, whether you do, like, 50% range of motion or, like, 55 doesn't hugely matter. So you don't have to be anal about this at all, right? But the one yeah. thing I'd say is making some effort to standardize week to week is good. Based on the coaching experience I've had, based on some of the research we've done, based on my own experience, standardization with partials isn't an issue. Again, it's one of those things that people will bring up kind of as like a knee-jerk reaction to anything new. It's like, can you standardize that? Oh, more fatigue, more injury, etc. Um, it's not a huge issue. What I'll say is there's a few things you can look out for. Uh, with machine work, typically, there's some sort of feature of the machine that you can pull to or push to where you know you can end the rep. For a lot of uh, movements involving your arms and or legs, you can simply end the rep when you get to like a 90 degree angle, right? So for example, mm -hmm. for school crushers or for curls or for pull downs or for squats. And then for RDLs and rows, for example, you can simply end the rep when you clear the knee, right? Because the knees tend to be a pretty static thing. And so you can just yeah. end it there. That's very obvious as well. So there's always, almost always going to be some sort of landmark or body position you can aim for. What I'll say is in the research, we've looked at 50% reps, so 50% of the four range of motion. 
as long as you're somewhere in that ballpark, you're almost certainly fine. Don't feel like you couldn't do length and partials because you're not going to be consistent week to week and you standardize because Dr. Mike Israel said so. Have you watched Sam Solik's videos at all? I have, a little bit, yeah. Yeah. Because I see, for example, like on a lat pull down, right? Because he's, if we're talking about some of the benefit of length and partials being the fact that you trade closer to true failure, he goes to true failure, right? Where it's like he gets his full range, quote unquote, because it's not really full range. But he's definitely prioritizing the long lengths, specifically in the back movements, like pull down, right? He'll go till he can't go anymore. And then he'll get a couple reps with maybe, let's say, 40 degrees uh, of range of motion in the in the long length. And then it's like 35, 30, 25. And then at the end, he's barely bending his arms, maybe five degrees. And I'm like, that's that's what like true failure actually is if we talk about like not being able to produce any sort of movement. Um, so maybe, maybe even like, I, I understand what you're saying about standardizing being something big in the evidence-based community, but it's like, what if you could squeeze out a little bit more gains by going to that degree of failure? Who knows? Man, we just don't know is the thing. Uh, yeah. The definition of failure is completely arbitrary, by the way, and you can never Certainly. tell internally or externally, like with yourself or with anyone else, whether you went to true failure. Like, yeah. short of literally dying during the set, I'm yeah, not sure you can really like determine failure, right? Like, sure. did you really push as hard as you could? Or are you having yeah. recall bias? Like, you can never tell. You can t- can't tell from the outside. You can't tell from the inside. It's a mind fuck. It's sad. Yeah. Um, what I'll say is also with true failure, that can be a shifting goalpost, wherein typically in research, the way we've operationalized it and looked at it is just full range of motion failure, right? That's what we call task failure or concentric failure, what have you. But if you want to talk about failure, you could go, okay, well, maybe when you can't get a length and partial anymore is when we should call it failure. Or maybe it's when you can't even hold an isometric without weight anymore in length of position. But maybe you could say, well, what if I just drop the weight? Then I could go for longer, and then I haven't hit failure yet. And then you're like, okay, so I can drop the weight to no weight. Like, you can always shift the goalpost. The question is, at this stage, we have to kind of stick, for the most part, with what we have evidence for, and not venture too far beyond that. And unfortunately, we don't have much evidence on going beyond failure. I guess the most direct evidence we have maybe is like one study and data on LinkedIn partials. That's about it. But when we're talking about the degree of failure of like, you know, stopping the set when you can't move it anymore when you're going asymmetric that's uncharted territory i don't know how that's going to impact things yeah no that's a great perspective man thank you for sharing that um dr milo wolf do you mind sharing with people how they can connect with you where they can follow you if they want to work with you how can they do so hey man i appreciate that um so you can find me probably most active on youtube if you just type in wolf coaching you'll find my youtube channel trying to disseminate a lot of information through there, evidence-based stuff with good frequency. Um, then I'm also on Instagram. You can find me at wolfcoach. So that's my last name and coach. I didn't just pick wolf because it's a cool animal, although it is. Um, you can also find my research. If you just type in researchgate Milo Wolf, my full name, and you'll find all my research on range of motion, on how close to failure to train, on technique, on deloads, a lot of stuff. Um, and the final thing, if you want to work with me or if you want to read any of my output or sign up to my newsletter and stuff, you can do that at wolfcoaching.com. A lot of that stuff is free. You can go check it out. Or if you want coaching, check that out as well. Fantastic. And for those of you listening, all the links to Milo's social media and website will be down in the description of the episode. My man, thank you so much for your time. And I look forward to connecting with you soon. Hey, man. Thanks for having me.